Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the investment bank for the creative digital economy. Today, we're pleased to present a conversation with Liontree CEO Arie Borkoff and Adriana Cisneros, the CEO of Cisneros Media. It was recorded as part of the Paley Dialogue series at the Paley Center for Media here in New York. The duo discusses generational leadership, the company's new satellite broadband venture, and the media landscape in Latin America and beyond. It is a great chat. Stay tuned. Before we begin, we wanted to let you know that for the first time, we're bringing you conversations from Media 2.0, featuring the thought leaders who are shaping our culture. If you like Kindred Cast, you'll love this show too. Subscribe to Conversations from Media 2.0 wherever you listen and stay up to speed on the intersection of entertainment, tech, and media. Today, I really think it's an opportune time to talk together, and we're going to get into a lot of specifics that are important to you. But also, I want to talk about three overarching themes. One is uh, leadership Mm -hmm. and the way that you build and run Cisneros Group. I really want to get into a generational shift in terms of how you're thinking about the future proofing of the business. The second thing I want to talk about is something that probably people would not expect you to be talking about, which is space and uh, the next frontier, because we are going to talk about some of your projects that are getting into um, areas beyond the normal uh, scope of things. And the third is the media industry at large and some of the topics around the media industry. So um, I want to start with leadership. You're obviously a uh, daughter of a entrepreneur who really uh, took over from his father and building the Cisneros Group. And when he sort of gave you that mantle or you raised your hand for it, what was the vision and how do you think about preparing for the next generation of the uh, leadership of the family? So there was no hand raised. I am the third. I am the youngest. I'm the one that they were not paying attention to. This job was not meant to be for me. This job wasn't necessarily meant to be for anyone in our family. There's no mandate that says the leadership has to come from within the family. It happened quite by chance, I would say. I went to grad school. I studied journalism. I wanted to set up a news agency for Latin America. I assumed I would join the family group at some point in my late 40s, and I ended up taking over when I was 27 instead. Plans are great until they change, and then they're not plans anymore. This is the Mike Tyson line. No, I was saving that for a little bit later. I made a grave mistake of writing a paper that was an analysis of where I thought we were as a media company, what we had done wrong and right in the previous 10 years, and the changes that I thought needed to be made. And I handed over this paper to my father and to our former CEO, And they said, wow, my God, this is amazing, but you need to execute because we actually don't know what to do with this. Mm. So that was how my conversation began about taking over the family business. And it was a conversation that we we managed very quietly because I wasn't sure that I could do the job or that I wanted the job, frankly. So they respected that. And we spoke very quietly for about three years. And in those three years, I started going back to school and learning about certain things I didn't know just to see that if a time would come where I felt that I was prepared to take over the job. And and then it became obvious that they were seeing something in me that I hadn't really figured out that I had, 
that's it. That's the rest of my life. Uh, it was well, that decision. But, uh, but now that you're executing on the plan yes. or, or new plans that you're developing, how would you describe your leadership style as an executive? You tell me. I can, you probably have a more objective view of me than me of me, uh, I think. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, at the beginning, when I started, I was 30 years younger than most of the senior leaders within our business. And that was a hard pill to swallow for some. For others, it was amazing to see that there was a future that was much younger than them. But at the beginning, it was difficult. And I realized that people were paying a lot of attention to me because I was young, because I was a woman, because I didn't have an MBA at the time or, you know, whatever it was, categories that they were trying to put against me. And I think that made me develop a leadership style that was very particular to me at that time, in which I was very strategic. Even though I was being extremely impulsive in the inside, I tried for none of that to show. And I also tried to be very calm in the way that I was trying to promote my vision for the group. Because I knew that if I was doing the opposite, all of those things would have been very easily used against me. My days are and were longer, just trying to be thorough and thoughtful and quite straightforward in my delivery. I think it's also that you have an appreciation for the past and a challenging and curiosity of what the future will bring in a very elongated manner, meaning that you're happy to look beyond the normal investment horizon to take some risks, in my experience with you, and you're curious at your core around those. No, and you're right, and I think that is a big part of the story. Every big deal that I've worked on in the past 10 years, I have looked to the past for clues into how to execute it. The way that we structured our Facebook deal, I represent Facebook in all the countries where they don't have their own operations in LATAM. I copied that from the way that my father had assembled the deal for DirecTV 15 years ago. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of questions that have already been answered by our own business. And we do have this corporate memory that helps us figure out what were the lessons learned and how we can improve certain terms. And you play it forward as well, you know, because you get to see the picture. It's sort of an amazing advantage that I believe that we have over a lot of newer companies. Yeah, and I think talking about that curiosity and that boldness, uh, I would say, about how you think about uh, making new bets, you have now gone into a venture in space called AST, yep. which is a low-Earth orbit satellite constellation that will have the goal of providing mobility services through the satellite infrastructure, which is ultimately going to be broadband for everybody, yeah. right? And the first of its kind. Yeah. So can you take us through how that became appealing to you? Yeah, so it's the coolest thing I've been ever involved with. And <laughs> if we pull this off, it's not only going to be the most important thing that we do as a business group in the 100 years that we've been around, I also think it's going to be thought of as one of the greatest innovations to happen in our generation. It's a huge bet. So this is an incredible company started by a fellow Venezuelan called Abel Avellan. His previous company was EMC. For those of you familiar, it was the largest data provider, uh, and he sold that company for I don't know, $600 million. And this is his new venture. And he's figured out a way to connect to, through satellites to any connected device in the world without the need of building any physical infrastructure on the planet. And the way that we're doing this is by self-assembling these very large structures in space, the biggest structures being assembled in space by anyone. And it's fantastic. So this means that we'll be able to connect to a very cheap phone, $30 phone bought in China, used in rural Africa. We'll be able to connect without having to do anything to it. 
This is way beyond Iridium. I mean, this is really, really cool. And it's quite different from OneWeb, which is what people are talking a lot about now. OneWeb is sort of more like a landline equivalent. And what we're doing is not landlocked. So it's pretty exciting. It's thanks to you, of course, that, that we know him. You had signed Abel as a, as a client. And from the four years that we had worked together on a couple of deals, you knew that I was obsessed with satellites. Mm-hmm. I blog about satellites. I interview people about satellites. It's all I read about. You know, like Forrest Gump with the shrimp? That's me with satellites. Um, so you, Why is that? People would not expect that from you whatsoever, I think. So you called me and you said, I'll, I'll tell you why. You called me and you said, you know, I'm in Miami. I have this new client. He's Venezuelan. <laughs> He's launching this new company and we're raising a gazillion billion dollars for him. And I said, well, you know, I don't have a gazillion billion dollars right now, but I'd love to meet him because I want him to be my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in Miami and wouldn't it be cool to just hang out with him? It was amazing. And in about three minutes, we realized that we would be fantastic partners. And we shook hands. We drew a little contract in a napkin that I now have framed. That was the beginning of what's taking up 90% of my time now. And I think together we're going to create something that is truly revolutionary. And without getting into details, it's really as you've been meeting with other technology companies and other investors or companies, they've been really embracing and impressed by the technology. Yeah. When we speak with people that really know about this, the ones that are tracking all of the different companies that are doing different things in in a similar space, they all tell us that we are way ahead of anybody else. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Going back to What was your father's reaction, by the way? Yeah, so, you know, I go, I call him, and I'm like, I signed this piece of paper, and this is what we're going to be doing now. (laughs) And he goes, of course, because it didn't feel that new to us. We were the ones that launched DirecTV in Latin America in the 90s. That was the first private space endeavor in Latin America by many, many, many years. And we were able to launch DirecTV in Latin America two or three years before our U.S. mother company partner were allowed to launch their service for a lot of reasons. And we had to get clearance from the U.S. government. I mean, this was a big deal for a business group out of Venezuela. And I got to go to the launching. And I remember the math. The math back then was complicated. It was one satellite. There was a two-year waiting list to get it built. It would take two more years to get it built. The satellite itself cost $900 million. Insurance was $500 million. And there was a 40% chance that that satellite would never make it into orbit. And I remember knowing all of that when we went to Cape Canaveral to see the launching of the satellite, which you know obviously made it in DirecTV was a huge business success yep. for us. So that's where the obsession comes from. So when I mentioned this to my dad, you know, it took him 32 seconds to say, absolutely, let's do it. And he said, this is really exciting. It's sort of like DirecTV but it's exponentially bigger in every aspect. And I'm like, yeah, it gives me shivers, you know, yeah. it's... I think Gustavo, your father, is also very encouraging of your taking risks at this stage of your career and given your time... He thinks I'm being super conservative, yeah. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think the space industry is an industry that people have a historical viewpoint of at a high level, but is worth revisiting, just like everything in our world, because costs come down. I think since 2009, it's been roughly $20 billion invested in the space area privately. Yeah, I mean, today, anybody that wants to play in that space, no pun intended, can actually play in that space. So you guys have worked, what, in three deals that I can recall? Yeah, right now we're working with Richard Branson and the Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit Enterprises. And so Virgin Orbit is obviously the broadband B2B business, but Virgin Galactic is a space tourism business. Yeah. At some point in our lifetime, I'm sure we're going to go to space together. Maybe That'd be really fun. Yeah. We can do one of these up there. <laughs> so, sounds good. Sounds good. Let me know when you want to go. 
But I think it's in our sights, and I think it's part of the hallmark of media and communications and the whole industry we focus on is that you constantly get to revisit these ideas that seem far away, uh, in this case, really far away. But when business models shift, you have to keep tracking it. And it's kind of the way I think you run your business, the way I run our business is that you constantly revisit the things that seem impossible mm-hmm. until they get closer and closer to possibility, even if it's in a faraway land. And then you try to like be the first one to tackle it. And then you learn and then you keep getting better and better. But you don't dismiss them no. in perpetuity. You know? No, well, some people do, and we don't, right? You know. And I think that's probably why we have so much fun together, because we're constantly talking about something we knew nothing about that we're now involved with, and, and we have to become quick studies. And it's a fantastic thing to do. How do you, within Lion Tree, push your team to become experts in, let's say, space investments? Is this a deflection of your interview? No. Back in okay. um, I just... I, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> While you're thinking about your next answer. I think it's just keeping the bar very high in terms of uh, excellence and not settling for mediocrity. Hopefully forgiving when things are missed, but not lowering the bar yeah. for anything or anybody. And then obviously approaching normal behavior with a collaborative exercise. And the more you talk to people, the more energy you get and the more you're on the line for the right answers and to be on the crest of the wave with these ideas. Yeah. We structure the company in three buckets, the relationships, which are important for everybody in the firm, not just for myself or whoever has a relationship, but for everyone in the firm. The idea generation around the industry thematically or for specific companies and specific relationships. And that is a full meritocracy. It can come from anywhere. Yeah. And then the execution of those ideas, because it's not just the deal that has to be executed, but you have to deliver what you say yeah. as a philosophical point. And I manage the business on those three functions more than any individual title or sector vertical or anything else. Yeah. And that's how we have systems and structures. It's yeah. not just a piece of paper. We actually do it that way. Yeah. And I think it's always that sweet spot between, and I think that's something that we also have in common, that we have a sort of a generalist approach to running our shop, right? And yeah. then find the specialties within there where you could see how it would be so much more tempting to just become a specialist, right, in, yeah. in, in one vertical. I, you can't leave anything to chance, but I think 90% of people spend their time thinking about the micro of what is specifically the details that yeah. folks on. But 90% of what matters is the macro. Correct. If something is moving in one direction, you better not miss the tidal wave. Yeah. So you have to look high level and then obviously know the details and yeah. get down to it. But I think you have to start with a thematic approach, which starts with you know, the world at large having a global mandate, starts with um, the economy, starts with the political environment, and having a sense of where things are going. You know, everyone talks about we're about to head into a recession and everyone's worried about the market cycle yeah. because no one wants to miss it, uh, yeah. that change. What do you think about the cycle and how are you preparing for it? Back to you. It's back to me. Okay, so I know that you don't like this answer because I get to have this answer and you don't get to have this answer. Okay. So I'm lucky. You don't care. And uh, I don't care. Mm. I don't care because we are always playing it so long. We're playing it 50 years forward. Everything that we do... That is our horizon. Yeah. So the way that we build our businesses and the way that we approach different geographies with that mindset really lets us build something that is resilient to those changes. We pay attention. Yeah. We play the game as well, but we're not in a constant panic. I, I'd even go further. It may actually even benefit you. Yes, it does. <laughs> right? Because I mean, the average recession historically is eight months long. Yep. Some have been much more severe. The more recent have been more severe, but eight months on average is... Not bad to withstand, hopefully, and maybe provide some opportunities. Yeah. Stan and I just went to a meeting this morning where we were having a conversation 
the person we're talking to, we're talking about a generational alliance, which is not meant to be an ageist comment at all, but it is meant to say like there's a millennial population which has now passed the baby boomers, it's the most diverse set of people. You have young CEOs like yourself who have the benefit of coming together and thinking longer term. Yeah. And so by design, you're supposed to sit through a market cycle change yep. and look for opportunities and invest into it, right? Correct. Whereas if maybe you're part of an older generation, you are crystallizing the Correct. work of your life. Very well put. This is a great opportunity to do that before the market cycle changes. Right. Some people in media have done that recently, right? Which is a nice thing to do to crystallize. But I think right now we're designed to play forward. Yeah. Well put. You agree, Stan? <laughs> One of the things I've learned from you is to focus on things that were foreign to me and to uh, lean into it. So our whole vision for covering Latin America as a bank, but also as an individual and being curious about it, naturally came from you. Mm -hmm. But in that time frame, which I appreciate, the region has changed dramatically mm -hmm. and it continues to change. It's not just about Venezuela, which we're going to talk about, but even the election cycle in Brazil and most countries that you've told me to visit have now become very commercial, pro-business. Yes. And when I go to Colombia or Peru or obviously Mexico or Argentina, Brazil, like it's really um, vibrant in terms of business opportunities. And it has to do with the politics, has to do with obviously um, a lot of other things. But tell me about your view of the region and uh, where the opportunities are. With the exception of Venezuela. We'll get to that. Uh, uh, I continue to think that this is a super exciting time for Latin America. We made a very specific decision to grow specific businesses within LATAM because mm -hmm. we were making that bet. It wasn't the, sort of this organic idea. When we started building our ad network, so we have the, the largest ad network in LATAM. We help monetize traffic across all platforms. It's 300 people, 31 offices, uh, and a lot of really cool clients, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, Facebook, um, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. We did that because we saw that on the one hand, there seemed to be stability coming. The middle class kept growing, and the, it was a middle class that was coming into age with a cell phone in their hands. And we're like, wow, it's like there's a digital sweet spot in LATAM that is the huge driving force for everything that you feel and everything that's happening is coming from that. Because that's the language and the opportunities that you relate to, that you like, mm -hmm. but it comes from there. It comes from sort of a very healthy and emerging middle class across all of Latin America. There's exceptions. Central America is in trouble right now. Venezuela is in transition, but it is a transition. But the rest of Latin America seems to be moving away from the sort of the populist way of thinking into a much more forward first world thinking idea. So I continue to be extremely optimistic. We are yet to see what's going to happen in Brazil. I think it's one of those situations where it's better not to listen to what he's saying, but to see what actions he's putting forward. But the Brazilian market seem to be reacting very well to him. Yeah. And, and Macri's having a hard time in Argentina, but we all knew that this was going to be a hard time for him now. Hopefully he's done enough work there so that there's going to be continuity. But, you know, in LATAM, you have to have that stomach to deal with volatility because it's always there. The constant is volatile. So just yeah. be okay with that. Yeah. As long as there's a fairness that's emerging, right? Now yeah. in terms of doing business. But you mentioned briefly the Facebook deal. So take us through Cisneros Interactive, what the Facebook deal is all about and how it's working and how the magnitude of it. Yeah, let's see. We were in our third year. We were still a pretty new outfit. We had major competitors that had been doing that for 10, 15 years. And we decided that there was a time to do things a bit differently in that space. And we created this company, uh, Cisneros Interactive. And in year three, we were the last people to be considered for an RFP being put forward by Facebook for a pilot program to see if in the countries where 
they had no offices, they could hire somebody to run their ad sales. If not, there was just money that was being left on the table. We managed to convince them that we would be the great partners. You to be managed. I managed to convince them that it would, I would be really good, even though I was new to the game. I was also really old to the game, and I actually thought that that was really good for the markets in which they wanted to do their pilot program. Fast forward two years, it is definitely not a pilot program right now. It's an official program, and it's being rolled out around the world in Africa and in Europe and, and so forth. So in a matter of months, there's going to be someone officially representing Facebook in every country in the world where you can, which is pretty cool. The experience working with them has been fantastic. You know, it's not just Facebook. It's all of their products. It's Instagram, WhatsApp for Enterprise in Latin America, which is beyond exciting, and Messenger. And it's really neat. Like, we're working in countries like Paraguay and Bolivia and Guatemala and Costa Rica, countries that most people don't have in their radar. And we're creating so much value by being able to have amazing relationships with very good brands where it's all business driven. It's been fabulous yeah, to Facebook. see how much value we can create in places where people are not paying attention. Yeah, Facebook is probably the, uh, in the macro sense, the least attractive part of the business because Instagram, WhatsApp, yeah. is a very powerful media. Yeah, so company. when I say Facebook, it's Facebook the holding, right? Yeah. It's the solutions that are fantastic are the ones that are coming out of some of their other tools. Yeah. It's extremely sophisticated. In every country where we represent them, we have a dedicated team that only is in charge of dealing with all of the solutions provided by the Facebook team because every week they're rolling out new algorithms, new ways that you can get things done that are really, really amazing. And is it an exclusive relationship between the two of you for that region? Are they working with anybody else? Or no, 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 just me. Just you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to keep it that way, too. <laughs> and and then, can you give us a sense of the magnitude of it? Is it I can't. How- I can't, but it is bigger than anything you would ever think. <laughs> You're testing my imagination. It's big. No, it's big. <laughs> it's big, and it, you know, it's, it's super exciting to be a part of that success because I think Latin America is now a really important part of Facebook and its revenues, and we can fully take credit for a big part of that, and that feels really good. That's excellent. Let's talk about Venezuela. I don't think you've talked about it publicly yet, but I'm grateful that you're here today to hopefully shed some light on Mm -hmm. what's happening. Uh, You own the largest media asset in Venezuela, Venevision. Yep. And you have for 20 years. Yep. And you probably thought it was a bit of uh, an asset that was trapped. Can it get unlocked now, and what do you think is happening? Yeah, so as, you know, way of background, my family is originally from Venezuela and our business group was started in Venezuela by my grandfather in the 20s. One of the first businesses that he set up was our TV network, which at the time was the fifth TV network in the world and the first one in Latin America. So we were very, very, very early to the game. The past 20 years have been tricky, to put it mildly. You know, we've had a government that really doesn't believe in private enterprise or freedom of press. Tricky, your father was thought to be assassinated, (laughs) right? So those things are complicated. When Chavez came into power, we made a decision that we thought it was best to survive to ensure that somebody could bring the news to the people. You could have done the opposite. You could have also said, I'm going to use this moment specifically to fight the government, and I don't care if I lose my license. This is my window. Some people did that, and, well, they lost their network, and we decided to do the other. We thought it was better to survive and figure out how to keep transmitting the news. And we developed this very complicated system of being completely... Neutral Neutral is difficult in a country that's so radicalized. People on the left think you're swinging to the right, and on the right, swinging to the left. It's very hard being in the middle, and everybody just ends up hating you. But that was the right thing to do. We never thought it would be 20 years. So what's interesting now is as we're thinking for the first time about what it's going to take to rebuild the country from every aspect, 
you also have to think about what does the media landscape look for a country that has been in this sort of black hole for the past 20 years? Mm-hmm. What is the leapfrogging that's going to happen in terms of technology, transmission, et cetera? But also what are the new models of entertainment that are going to be more in tune to the way things should be today if you were starting from zero? You know, if you, Ari Burkov, founded your own nation today, what would the media landscape look like there? You know, none of it would be residual. All of it would be pretty new. There's a lot of thinking going around up that. Well, there's a lot of benefits, I'm sure, to having residual assets that can be transformed, right? Because you have, Venezuela is almost 30 million people around that. So it's a big media market. So you don't want to foreclose on having the -the over-the-air broadcast network. Yeah, no, it's exciting. It's exciting. We're trying to find the silver lining, right? In uh, of 20 years of hardship and... It is an exciting moment when you realize that you're going to be able to rebuild your country and participate in many aspects of that. Yeah, and um, your father is very involved in helping to unlock possibilities. Of course. Good. I'm sure there's a lot you're still not telling us. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you going that far. But it is fraught with risk, but a lot of exhilaration that there's going to be an openness to the new landscape and the removal of a a dictator. It's going to be amazing. Amazing from a philosophical standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a business standpoint. You know, it's not every day that you wake up and suddenly there's a new addressable market that's pretty big and pretty incredible available to you. Where you already own the biggest asset. But regardless of that, you know, I think for anybody, for anybody in the oil sector, logistics, food, medicine, anybody is going to be like, wow, okay, we can come in into Venezuela again. It's going to be pretty exciting. Talking about people coming in, SoftBank, our friend Marcelo has uh, announced a large investment. A $5 billion fund. For For the Vision Fund in Latin America. Uh, So it's not the Vision Fund. Oh, it's SoftBank, yeah. It's a new fund that he's setting up to invest in companies and technologies that he thinks are going to change the world. That's the scale that they operate with. In LATAM. In LATAM. And, you know, it's a huge bet. I'm trying to do the math and the numbers to figure out how much money he's going to have to spend every year. And it's a lot of money. I love the fact that he thinks that those opportunities are there and that they're big enough for him to be writing those checks. If he pulls this off, LATAM will be before and after Marcelo Claudé for sure. So I think we're going to be seeing a couple of announcements in the next few weeks that are going to give us some clues. Do you view that as an endorsement of your strategy, a partner, a competitor for deals when it comes to capital, or how do you view the SoftBank? No, an enabler. Marcelo could have done anything that he wanted now. And he decided that he wanted to go back to Latin America because he obviously sees the same thing that I see, that there's this sort of this convergence of the middle class and the digital generation, you know, there that want all of their solutions to be solved digitally from banking to logistics. So I think that's the focus. And I'm so happy that he's doing that and not focused on Asia or another region, because I think he's one of the few people right now that has the gravitas to be able to really make a huge, 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 it's not a dent, this is like a huge difference in our region. And for people like us that are always identifying new opportunities, new verticals, et cetera, if anything, he's going to be a fantastic partner. So let's talk about the media industry now and your views of how things are changing, because this is the Paley Center and the Paley Media Council. I would just make a comment at the beginning, media is always sort of counted out as a legacy business, but has reinvented itself nicely. In fact, a lot of the large content companies have now embraced a direct-to-consumer offering and really getting this content directly to the audience that Netflix was before and Amazon was before and still does. The reinvention of media, I think, is something that should be applauded 
and very much watching it before our eyes, a business in transition, which is not easy to do, especially as public companies. You're a private company. Mm-hmm. You have media assets. You have other assets in real estate as well. But for the media business, where do you think we are in the cycle or how are you approaching opportunities? I'm not deflecting, but I do think that your thermometer for that is better than mine because, I mean, how many deals come through your desk that you might or might not take on a weekly basis? Hundreds. Yeah, our job is to look at sourcing deals in the creative industries and the digital economy around the world every single day. Yeah. Could be hundreds, could be more than that in some cases, but we self-select which ones we want to work on yeah. that are very interesting. And um, the curiosity point you mentioned is the thematic. So the CEOs and the management teams and the boards of the media companies are not satisfied with the status quo. None of them are, mm-hmm. actually. There's this dynamic of change happening, but I think we're past the... <coughs> academic sense of that now. We're actually, the companies are putting businesses in motion. It's not enough now to uh, talk about digital or direct-to-consumer. These are core to the strategies. I mean, when we first started talking about these things years ago, every media company had a digital division. Yeah. And that was kind of crazy, right? Because yeah. Because I was like, talk to the digital folks over there. Yeah. You know, they'll tell you how to use the internet. It's now in the boardroom. Right now, it's core to the whole strategy yeah. of every division. And I think you're starting to see that in the results. The couple that with uh, generational movement. So you have um, David Zaslav, who's a young CEO of Discovery, integrating a very nice asset in scripts. You know, the Viacom CBS teams with Shari Redstone taking bold bets every day. You have Lachlan Murdoch now as the new CEO of Fox, a young CEO. Michael Rapino at Live Nation. Mike Freeze is coming here soon. So you have a Greg Maffei. You have these executives that are still very hungry putting real bets in place and starting to see the results of those things, which I think is really exciting. So I would not count out media as independent drivers anymore. Yeah. You have been extremely successful in the Nordics, extremely successful in LATAM, and you're obviously kicking ass in the U.S. So are there definite thematics, differences that you see between the deals that you're seeing in those, maybe the more extreme regions, Nordics versus LATAM? Or is there a trend that you see that it's global? I think it's all global. Yeah. To be honest with you, I think one of the benefits, one of the advantages we all have working in this industry are that the uh, the thematics and the issues that have to be tackled actually stand up in every region around the yeah. world. So if you're in the healthcare industry or in the industrial businesses, you have to really understand the local dynamics of the fundamentals. I think in media and technology and communications to a large extent, they're very similar. So that's a scalable function. Yeah. So if they're similar around the world, play globally. Yeah. So I think CEOs of most of these companies do have global mandates, which is exciting. You know, yeah. I think once you endorse that strategy, then you're always on the road, you're yeah. traveling, because if we're in France or Colombia or the U.S. or obviously in China or India, the thematics are similar, which I think is exciting. Yeah. But the challenges are also the same. I think that the new element that is really going to make these things different is everything that's happening, all the global initiatives that are happening around connectivity, yeah. whether it's my solution or OneWeb or, you know, I don't know, there's 10 companies that we can talk about that are trying to figure out how to have everybody be connected in one way or the other. That's huge. The repercussions of that is huge. So we might all agree that between Sweden and Colombia, everybody's kind of in the the same mode. When you actually start thinking that you're going to be able to address an extra billion people, people that didn't really have any connectivity that are going to go from zero to having Netflix stream to their cell phone, you start realizing that there's going to be another chapter of opportunities for local companies to even do more things around content and distribution. Yeah, I think a couple of things on that. One is the more the business model is connected directly to the consumer around the world, the more power sits with the consumer itself and the creator of content and the talent itself. 
the pressure then starts to go to the middleman, so to speak, or the intermediary to constantly add value, right? So if you're a broadcaster or you're a cable channel or you're even a cable distributor, you have to reinvent yourself all the time to add value to that consumer because the consumer is getting the choices directly from the creator a lot of times. So what Bob Iger did last week with Disney is exactly that. I mean, it's taking the channels that they had, which are fundamentally intermediaries, yeah. creators, and adding value to the consumer directly yeah. versus letting someone else add yeah. value to the consumer. I'm not saying the middleman is going to get squeezed, although I think it will. I think the intermediary, so to speak, including for a company like ours, which we're an intermediary between you know, clients and investors, or et cetera, the pressure is higher to add value and to innovate yourself all the time. Yeah. I'm sure you feel that way. Yeah. The other thing about the connected society, I think, is that it ends up being a more divisive society. The paradox of that is the more connected the world is, the more varying opinions are brought to light. Yeah. And so you have this feeling a lot of times that the more connected we are, that we're all going to get along, it's going to be hunky-dory, it's going to be amazing, and it's the exact opposite. And you're feeling that now, right? Because all the divisiveness that you're seeing in society at large is partially because we're connected as a society. Yeah. There's a great book called The Square and the Tower by... Niall Ferguson, who talks about what's more powerful, the corporate hierarchy and the political yeah. structure, or the, the square, which is the social network. Yeah. This time and the time of the Reformation were the most connected societies and the most divisive oh, interesting. That then shifts back into leadership. Who are our leaders to take us through that? And I think um, you're one of them. And I think you're one of them, too. <laughs> I appreciate it. There are many in the room here and listening in as well. I'll talk about leadership, though. The media industry is a forward-thinking industry in a lot of ways. But backwards looking when it comes to something that you have tackled, which is female leadership. There is no public company CEO in the U.S. that's a woman in the media industry. None. There's only 24 in the S&P 500 overall, so 5%. But you are a, uh, obviously a very capable CEO in your own right, but happen to be a woman. How do you think about that as a mantra for leading the industry overall that you're part of? The easy answer, which is the truthful answer, is that I am very lucky I wasn't raised in a household where we were thinking about who we were in terms of our sexuality. Like the female issue was never an issue for me. I never felt it. It's only recently that I started feeling it because it's so much part of the conversation. Venezuela in the 80s was a really forward-thinking place. We were the country that had the most female CEOs per capita in the world. And these were women that still felt that they could be beautiful and have children and be really good at their jobs. There was no compromising in the way that there was with women in the 80s in the U.S., That was like a fundamental difference. So that's like the household where I was raised. I don't think the future is female. I think the present is female. If we keep thinking that it's a matter of the future, the change is not going to happen quick enough. It's our responsibility, not us, the women, like our responsibility collectively, everybody who's here, to make sure that we're pushing so that that present is female. I am so often the only lady in the room. And my friend Alexis, who's here, is also often the only lady in the room. And Kara and Lisa, thank you for coming to keep me company. (laughs) The guys love to come and talk to us to say, hey, because you're a woman, let's talk about this issue. And I'm like, no, because you're a guy, you should talk about this issue. The issue starts with you, not with us, right? We all collectively need to be very proactive because women are prepared, they're graduating, they're working, they're there, they're available, they want it, and we just have to make sure that we pave the way so they can have equal opportunity. Excellent. I'm being told that it's time for a Q&A uh, from the audience, so please wait for the microphone if you have a question because it is gonna be live streamed, so we wanna hear your voice. So Bobby, if you can get a microphone up to the front. 
I am the youngest and I feel overlooked a little bit too, Arye. Uh, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, you know, talking about the globalization of media, everyone's scared to death about Netflix here. But I wonder, content creators like myself give all rights to Netflix for the most part and they're buying the world. So if you're a network in another place where the studios were giving you windows on content, so if you're Spain and Warners were saying, I'm gonna give you a window on this content so you can program your network with a big movie, whether that be Avengers or a great series, does that make independent network owners around the world a little bit more nervous? Because here that has not been the case. The studios and everyone else has sold their product to the cable operators, despite the fact that the big bundle doesn't really work. But with the smaller networks around the world, and the reason I'm bringing that up because I know the membership here has a lot of these folks who own networks, I'd be a little nervous. Either Arye or Adriana. Well, I mean, I think it's the opposite. I think that when you have a small network or a small content company, you have outsized power these days because of the various vehicles and vessels to reach the consumer globally. If you're worried about like a gatekeeper model, there's so many more outlets for you as a content creator to differentiate yourself and license that content to players that can give you a global audience. You know, it used to be that you were very regional in nature, and now it's going to be everything's above the globe. So I, I think the power goes to the small players on the content creation side because the consumer that you can reach is the biggest that you've ever been able to reach on a global scale, which is it changes the game. So the international terrestrial guys could be in a little bit of a problem. Any terrestrial network or any broadcast or any intermediary has to reinvent itself. A lot of them are getting into content production themselves, right? Or creating more alliances. What do you think? Yeah, I think in Latin America, it's different than the U.S. where most people that own a TV network have production facilities within the network. And the model was set up to produce everything that was going to be aired, even though we all know that that model is not good. It's been actually very difficult for most networks to really divide those things up and think of them as two businesses. And I think that's where everybody got into trouble. Mm-hmm. Right now, when I see the smaller terrestrial network owners from Latam... <laughs> producing for Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. It's prestige. It's not money because the current model does not allow you to make any significant money. The margins are minute. But it's kind of cool. It puts you in the map as a producer. But you have to stop thinking of yourself as a network owner. That line has to happen for it to become a business that you can grow and push for better margins. The endless conversation about, I think network owners are getting smarter saying, you have to give me a window to be able to air that on my network too. And I think at some point, the Netflixes of the world are going to give in. But, you know, Netflix, I think, was the yummiest candy at the candy store for a little while. But now, because a lot of connectivity issues have been resolved and a lot of tools are available, in a lot of the countries that you go, there's a lot of other OTT solutions that are pretty great. Mm -hmm. uh, And people are just used to getting their content to three, four, five, six different solutions. And it doesn't really matter that much anymore, where that wasn't the case a few years ago. If you add up all the projections or prognostications of all the OTT players, I think it's like probably multiples of our global society. And uh, so you have to really start to get into, are consumers going to take all of the above? Are yeah. they going to start to churn one versus the other? Are they going to differentiate one versus the other? I think we're getting to that kind of maturity profile of those players. Another question? Thank you for being here. <laughs> question for you. It seems like take a global recession out of it. All the wins are in your sales. You have so much going for you. Where could you drop the ball? Oh, Uh, our satellite company, AST, it's a huge bet. It's really exciting. I'm 100% sure that it's going to work and that it's going to be fantastic. It's also the riskiest thing I've ever done. That's tricky. 
I think other than that, I feel that the other businesses that we're in are in a really stable place. We're assuming that things in Venezuela are changing in the right direction and it will be an interesting time to play in that space as well. I, I don't think that that can reverse itself. So Also, you have 5,000 employees, so always a lot to be concerned about, right? Yes. I'm not losing sleep these days. I do often, but not recently. I think we're good. I have good advisors. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. I loved your story. I loved the, the notion of being the kid in the family that nobody was quite paying attention to and then rising up and running the show. But also, you, you made reference a couple of times to meeting your partner in satellites and space and within 30 seconds, right, yeah. deciding. And then at one point, you were talking about your father, and you said, oh, 30 seconds later, he just decided. You seem to place a premium <laughs> on this kind of flash reaction, on this kind of quick gut level reaction. And I'm curious what you look for in an idea or a person right away when they come at you. Because I'm sure, like Aria, you get a thousand different ideas coming yeah. at you a day. So thank you. And I do listen to my gut. I think my gut is smarter than my brain often. But in the case of those specific examples that you said, the reason I mentioned them was not because like, oh, I decided to go into satellites and how fun that would be. It was quite contrary. I realized that with my partner, there was a total alignment in what we wanted to do. And I saw how I would be totally complementary to his vision. And the conversation with my father was very short because it's in a way, it's a conversation that we've been having for 20 years. It's a total continuation of that bet that he did when he launched DirecTV in Latin America. So it was very natural. Oh, of course, that makes total sense. That's where we're going with this. Let's do it. I have other businesses that I've had ideas that I have conversations with him that take weeks because it's something totally new in a totally new space where we've never been in. But he's always willing to listen to me. And I think the most beautiful thing about the partnership that I have with my father is that we do seem to be connected in a way that I haven't seen many people be connected. We don't have to explain many things to each other. We seem to think in very similar ways. And a lot of people don't understand us, but we understand each other. So that's where that quickness comes from. The satellite venture for most people seemed like a really crazy idea. And for us seemed like a very obvious thing that we needed to do and we needed to do quickly. I think the stronger your foundation, the more risk you can take. Yeah. Right? Like uh, I always think of like a trampoline. If you're worried about the trampoline falling apart, you're not going to jump so high. <laughs> if you feel like the trampoline is sturdy, you'll jump and go as high as you can in the yeah. sky. So I feel like you have a very strong foundation, uh, not just with your family, but also in the way that you've been brought up business-wise. And so when you see an opportunity to take risks, you can jump at it quicker. Correct. Know? Correct. Always ready. So you can take one more <laughs> question, please. Hi. I did a lot of work in Latin America for many years. I ran the Fox channels for a number of years down there. So I, I spent a lot of time in uh, LATAM. Given that you're making this big investment in ATS, and obviously that's a mobile distribution platform, ultimately in terms of the way I am understanding it, how do you see things advancing in Latin America, pay TV versus mobile content distribution? What's going to be the winning platform, particularly as you look at younger generations coming up? And is pay TV under threat in Latin America? Yeah, I think all traditional media models are definitely under threat. Number one, because Latin America is just like the rest of the world and the young people there are just like the rest of the young people in the world and they want to have direct access to the content that they believe in. I do think that this push for connectivity that's becoming very much available is changing the way that media companies are figuring out their strategies for sure. The numbers are out there in terms of cable subscription, ad spend, you know, et cetera, for TV. And I think it's all moving in the digital economy for sure. I don't think one thing is going to replace the other. I think one thing is going to evolve very quickly into the other. 
In terms of technology, the days in which we were putting up towers to have better connectivity are gone. In terms of government policies, the days that people would have to pay $35, $75 million for a license for an open network, I mean, those days are gone. So all of those standards, I think, are being thrown out the window very quickly. The, the average adult in this country, in the U.S., spends 11 hours a day on some form on of entertainment or reading or yeah. something. So I don't think that has a lot of room for expansion, but the makeup of those 11 hours, yeah. which is substantial, keeps shifting. So it's yeah. more gaming, yeah. a little less video. Well, even, you know, like uh, Facebook, this was really cool. When Facebook started talking about their TV initiatives, one of the first things that they did for Latin America was to buy the rights to the biggest football tournament. That's how the Latin Americans are going to watch this tournament is through Facebook. It's not through their local TV channel. That's very symbolic and very important and super cool. <laughs> With that, Audrey, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out Kindred Media's new show, Conversations from Media 2.0, where the folks who are shaping our culture give us an inside track on what's next. Subscribe to Conversations from Media 2.0 wherever you listen to your podcasts. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.